0: You are listening to the Interactome, a podcast by a group of young researchers who want to connect you to the world of science by sharing their stories and perspectives. Just in case their bosses are listening, they want to remind you that the opinions expressed here are their own. They also want to remind you not to take anything they say as medical or professional advice, as they are not doctors. Not yet, anyway. Stay tuned about that. And without further ado, welcome
1: interactome
2: hello interactome listeners it's maya here to explain rna woo (laughs) So, very exciting. So, this is part two out of three of a series of podcast episodes in which we'll be going through each part of the central dogma. So, if you haven't checked it out already, you should check out our episode about genes, DNA, and genetics. Um, But today we'll be talking about RNA. So, I am looking forward to discussing all of the wonderful things that pertain to this amazing nucleic acid. And in the future, we'll also have an episode about proteins, and that'll tie up together this little mini series. So, proteins. Woo! Exciting. But um, first, let's hear who else is on the pod today. And if you could introduce yourself and tell me what emotions, what feelings you feel when I say RNA to you. I honestly (laughs) love that question. Mm -hmm.
0: Um, My name's Joe. I go. Wait, wait, wait. That's like a bit that I've done like three times. (laughs) Listeners who are recurring are probably like, Natalie, please let it go. No, I'm Natalie. Um, I'm one one sixth of the interactome. Um, And when I think about RNA, so this is going to be cheesy and we're going to get into this in a little bit. But I right now I think hope. Right, because of the Nobel Prize, because of what RNA was able to accomplish, um, or the mRNA vaccine was able to accomplish um, uh, as part of the COVID pandemic. And I also think of innovation. So hope and innovation are the two that come to mind.
2: Wow. Amazing. Um,
1: Hey, everyone. I'm I'm the real Joe. Um, <laughs> when I hear RNA, I feel a lot of excitement because I, um, I mean, one, similar to what Natalie mentioned, there's been a lot of really cool things going on with RNA and there's going to be a lot of even like really cool things going on with RNA in the future. Um, I also like a bunch of my research has kind of delved into some of the nitty gritty weird aspects of RNA that people just aren't really paying attention to. So uh, we'll, we'll get into that. Um, But, yeah, it's just like RNA is really cool for many different reasons. Um, And, yeah, maybe I I won't spoil it any further.
2: (laughs) And, um, yeah, I guess I'll wrap up intros by saying, um, I guess I never said what feelings RNA elicits in me. (laughs) Yeah, Maya. But, oh, I don't know. I feel like my answer is weird now because I settled on two words um, for my emotions about RNA. One is nostalgia, and the other is fear. Fear. (laughs) Those are two
0: great descriptive
1: words. Wow. (laughs) I will say, yeah,
2: I do agree that there's a lot of very exciting um, things happening in the RNA field, and we'll get to that a little later. But for me, it's nostalgia because um, RNA is what inspired me to do a career in research. So when I was learning Mm -hmm. about it in biology classes... um, I was like, oh, that's a neat little molecule. I want to learn more. So I'll um, say a little bit more about this later in the episode. But um, it's kind of like what got me hooked into a career as a research scientist. Um, and also fear, because maybe, Joe, you can like um, relate to this somehow, but RNA is like a little tricky to work with in the lab. <laughs> oh, it is. So uh, when I was working with RNA in my old lab, um, my or like my supervisor would like always scare me. She'd like has to be on ice, like don't leave it out for too long, like work as quickly as possible, like don't let it don't let it like degrade. Don't and it was so scary. So <laughs> I was always so afraid to work with it cuz um we'll get into it, but RNA is very unstable. So um I am afraid when I hear it. It stresses me out. But also um there are a number of other very cool things that are unrelated to that as well. <laughs>
1: I have a story related <laughs> to that too. I'd, I'd love to get into it in one, a little farther. In.
2: Okay, cool, cool. But, um, but I guess we should kind of define what exactly RNA is. So um, RNA stands for ribonucleic acid. So that's R-N-A, ribonucleic acid. Um, and it has three components that make it up. So there's the ribose sugar, um, which is one of the parts. So that's the R that's um, contributing to the name. Um, and in addition to the sugar, there's a second part called a base. Um, so these are different molecules um, that are very important for kind of encoding um, information that gets passed around in the cell. There's four different kind of bases, um, and they are adenine, uracil, guanine, and cytosine. If you listen to our genes and genetics and DNA episode, um, you'll remember that DNA also has bases. Um, and in RNA, The bases are the same except for uracil, which is unique to RNA. Um, Mm -hmm. And the last part of RNA, part number three is a phosphate. Um, So that makes up the little backbone of this whole RNA molecule and is kind of what allows for all of these separate little RNA molecules to be connected together so that they can make long short chains, et cetera, et cetera. Um, So um, I guess like, Kind of like the key things that are different when you're thinking about RNA versus DNA um, is that, for one, um, I mentioned that RNA has that uracil group, which is unique to RNA. um, But RNA also has this reactive hydroxyl group on the ribose sugar, and DNA does not. So that's why DNA is Mm -hmm. called deoxyribose, ribonucleic acid. No oxy, deoxy. Wow. <laughs> so those are kind of like the bigger differences between our two favorite nucleic acids um that are essential building blocks for life.
0: Yeah, and I think we can talk a little bit about too, like what that actual kind of deoxy means. Um before this episode too, I I was chatting with um with my boyfriend and and he was like, Oh yeah, like what is what is the R stand for in RNA? And I was saying ribose, and and deoxy and the reason that um you, and I and I believe and Joe and Maya, correct me if I'm wrong, but one sure. of the reasons it's so tricky to work with is because of that oxygen on the ribose mm. that makes it much more reactive, less stable. Oxygen is a um is an element that uh takes electrons away from other elements. It's a really I, I learned it as like a really greedy element. (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. And so it takes all the electrons and that has ripple effects on the other molecular structures around it.
2: Yes, you're exactly right. So that oxygen in the hydroxyl group um, on the RNA was the reason for my fear when I think about RNA, because it does make it quite (laughs) unstable.
0: (laughs) And hey, I just guessed on all of that. I was like, I think this is
2: right. So no, I'm pretty no, no, proud right. of that one. It's very reactive. And it's, um, yeah, yeah. to get into it a little more, like the re- having that hydroxyl or OH oxygen, hydrogen group on a sugar just makes it a lot easier for like other enzymes and stuff like that to kind of like attack the RNA and then just kind of like break up the molecule. So it's very tragic, but it happens.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think a little, a little, just to kind of like put this into reference for our listeners. It's it's we we talk about this molecule being unstable, but if it was so unstable that it couldn't really do anything,
2: like it so wouldn't
1: have a functional cell. Like so, it it is. Um, we'll we'll get into a uh, a little bit, but it, like RNA has a lot of different functions, and uh, oftentimes those functions are uh rel- like like rel- are relatively sh- like the time for which RNA has to perform a function is relatively short in comparison to DNA. DNA is kind of it's as, as one of my uh, former lab mentors said, DNA is the world's most stable molecule. Um, it, it, it can last for a long, long time. I don't know if that's actually like it actually is the world's most stable molecule, but you can take DNA and just like leave it in a tube with some water, just for like for for years, and like <laughs> it will still be there. We literally can like take um, DNA from like woolly mammoths and like sequence woolly mammoth DNA and stuff like that. That's so RNA cool. is um, like that's showing how stable DNA is. RNA um, is more easily degraded; it breaks down more easily. Kind of as we're talking about, it. it's more easily attacked by enzymes by proteins by other other like mechanisms going on in the cell but uh, it's still stable enough that it can get its job done in the time that it has to Um, Mm. so um, it's really it's as a what if dna is kind of like the um, central like place in which the cell codes information rna is kind of like the middleman Um, or in its most like commonly well-known function. um, It carries messages from the nucleus where all the DNA is into the cytosol where all the protein making machinery is. Um, And so like in that sense, you don't want your messages to last forever. Um, Because if you're saying, oh, make protein A, but you don't actually need protein A, like you don't actually need more protein A. If you're just constantly making tons and tons of protein A and you keep sending instructions to make that, like, that's a problem. Mm. Like, c- cells have to be able to adapt. And so that um, a- that lack of or reduced stability in comparison to DNA is actually very useful for RNA's function.
2: Yeah, and it's like, it's so interesting because I feel like cells have so many different ways of regulating RNAs as well. So not only just relating to their stability um, or their degradation, but even just like producing the mRNA um, is... There's so many layers and layers of regulation that undergoes that. So, like, when do you want protein A? When should we make it? Um, so I guess like to back it up a little, Joe mentioned that the kind of like most well-known function of RNA is to act as a middleman between DNA, um, which we know from our last podcast episode about genes and genetics Um encode information. Go listen. Go listen. Um, so the <laughs> DNA encodes information um, for the proteins in your cells, which um, are doing kind of like a variety of functions, doing all the work um in your cell to keep them happy and healthy. Um, so RNAs are like the middleman, so they um are produced from the DNA. So there's a um specific cellular machine um, that produces the mRNA, um, that has, like, a corresponding code, um, that you can also find in the DNA. Um, so if you remember those bases I talked about, the, um, adenine, uracil, guanine, cytosine, um, when RNA is made, um, it also has those bases, um, and just, like, kind of, like, in the same, it has, like, the same information that, um, of the DNA that it is, um, templating. Um, so then you have your rna made from dna um or rather to put it in a better way your rna using dna as a template for the sequences that are found in the rna um it has all these instructions um so these sequences that code for your protein um that another cellular machine will kind of like read and then produce the proteins based off of that code um so these are kind of like the big messenger, messenger RNAs that we talked about that are responsible for bringing these messages, like Joe mentioned, um, to become proteins. Um, so what's part of a messenger RNA? We mentioned the code that's kind of like encoded into the messenger RNA. Um, so there's... Um, Sorry, let me Can back I ask a up. quick question? Yeah. <laughs> my, my train um, of thought just like fell off abruptly. I was like, ooh, messages. And I was like, what?
0: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> it all the time. Yeah. No, literally, <laughs> me all the time. Um, why is there a U in RNA and a T in DNA? What's the point of that?
1: I think it's a really good question. Um, I'm going to say I haven't explicitly looked into this. Um, but I think one of the, one of the functions is to, um, distinguish between what is RNA and what is DNA kind of, that's one mechanism. Um, also, um, I think this is a a little, um, we're actually going to get into this later on, um, but RNA, like the uracil base as compared to the thymidine base, um, like there's actually some um, modifications that can be made to it mm. uh, that can indicate that oh I am a uh, a part of the cell I am like supposed to be here as compared to uh, virus RNA which mm. doesn't have these modifications so <laughs> that's so it's, interesting um, it's there, there, there's a there's probably a lot of other reasons why um, but there there's a that, that's a few I mm. would say.
2: Mm, I think also uracil and thymine are pretty similar in structure as well. So like Joe is mentioning, um, we are probably going to talk about important uracil modification um, later on, Um, but I think the difference between uracil and thymine is that thymine is methylated and uracil is not. Um, Mm -hmm. so if I remember correctly, there's probably some kind of like process that ensures that like the thymines are methylated, um, and then they kind of like get put in the DNA. Um, but evolutionarily wise or like why, um, I'm not too sure. Joe, you look like you have an idea. I,
1: I, I just, I just did a quick Google search. Um, and honestly, it's, it seems like a lot of the most commonly cited reasons um, are actually going back to that a whole idea of stability mm. um, where like, cause uracil is as a structure, like uracil is kind of like actually like, like this, this like a, f- a five carbon ra- ring of car or a ring of five carbons and a ring of six carbons kind of stuck together um, like that, like, and with a few little other atoms kind of coming off of it for whatever reason, that structure is a little less stable hmm. than uh, thymine, which is s- very similar structurally, but it has like a few different atoms in terms of its arrangement. Um, and so this this uracil is more easily able to like break down or degrade, hmm. which kind of goes like RNA doesn't really care because I mean it's going to be broken down relatively quickly.
0: Scientists use Google too. That's one thing that we can <laughs> learn from this episode. Um, Google is very but important. also. <laughs> Yes, and note that Joe said the sources, plural. So if you're consulting Google, don't go with the first thing that pops up. Check out our source episode.
1: (laughs) I think another important thing to note about RNA is that um, it has a really interesting structure. Like DNA is kind of like two rungs in a ladder that kind of like twists in a little helix shape. RNA is just like, imagine... You had one strand of DNA, sequence-wise. You could take that sequence, and instead of having another sequence that's entirely complementary to it, you could take this one strand and fold it in on itself uh, in many different ways, and like twist and turn it, so you, have, you get all these wild shapes. Um, mm. That RNA can do that. Um, so you can have a um, many RNAs that are similar in their sequence, but given like that RNA can fold up into many different ways. Something with a ver- like a similar sequence may actually in 3D space be very different structurally. Uh, and so that's a, something that's very important when it comes to RNAs. The, um, stru- the 3D structure of the RNA is very important for its function. Um, and so a good example of that is uh, transfer RNAs or tRNAs. Um, they, these are little guys that are actually kind of in a T-shape. Um, and they're so they, cute, they're so adorable. Cute. They're really cute. <laughs> and their job is to actually, um, they're not like the normal messenger RNAs. Um, they actually help read the messenger RNAs. And so their little job is to go and read every three bases and say for each, for these three bases, um, these three bases correspond to this kind of amino acid. So every tRNA is linked up to an amino acid. And the tRNA kind of like floats into the ribosome, um, the the protein making machine. And as a RNA and a messenger RNA is read, like run through the the ribosome, kind of like a printer. Um, this kind of like translates the uh, information on the RNA into a protein. And we can get into that more in the uh, the protein episode. But that's another really cool function that um, that RNA can do um and i personally have a bias towards tRNAs <laughs> we'll get into that later but just have to put it put that out there uh, yeah for but,
2: sure and yeah like you mentioned um RNA can adapt all of these interesting folds and structures um and they can do a lot of different functions which is really interesting and i feels like i feel like um this leads into a kind of like debated but very well known and um maybe, is popular the right word? Maybe well-known um, hypothesis um, in the RNA field. Um, and that is da, 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 the RNA world hypothesis.
0: I <laughs> was I was looking at Joe and I was about to make like a dun-dun like noise too, <laughs> but then Joe started making a noise. I, I did mine
2: anyway, but... <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, the RNA world hypothesis um, is kind of like controversial, depends on who you talk to. Um, but I feel oh, like boy. it's, <laughs> we'll see where we stand on this. Um, but I would say it's it's pretty well known amongst um, biologists um, that are, I don't know, kind of interested um, in the origins of life. So um, kind of the big idea behind the RNA world hypothesis is that, um, well, you know, in the beginning, when there was no <laughs> life um, and everything was just primordial soup soup everywhere um life needed to find chicken soup yep just campbell soup (laughs) (laughs) when the universe was just soup when earth was just soup there was no (laughs) life Mm, but if we bring ourselves back to those um primordial times um you know life needed to find a way to replicate itself that's one of the big um defining characteristics of what counts as a living thing Um, And scientists have hypothesized that um, RNA may be what's responsible for this. Um, So they're thinking of RNA as a potential molecule that can self-replicate or auto-catalyze its own formation. Um, And then maybe this is how all primordial cells kind of like went around and did their business, made other primordial cells maybe. Um, before we had modern cells with like DNA and RNA um, and protein all together. Um, But then since there's been some evidence, so Joe said that RNA can um, kind of like fold on itself, adopt all these structures. Um, There's also um, other examples of RNAs in nature today that have catalytic properties. So there's rRNA, ribosomal RNA um which is a part um of the ribosome so the protein making machine that we mentioned earlier um and the ribosomal RNA is embedded throughout the ribosome so it's kind of like really really in there um but what's cool about it is that it has a catalytic property in which it facilitates the interaction of the messenger RNA um and the transfer RNA so the mRNA and the tRNA um, and it's um, Kind of weird, because why does it have catalytic properties um, if it's kind of just a nucleic acid? So the existence of these kind of catalytic RNAs have led scientists to postulate, oh, you know, since RNA can both contain genetic information, so have like the bases, um, the information that encodes um, for the amino acids, for the proteins. um, So it can have genetic information, but it can also have like protein-like properties where it catalyzes things, things um maybe it was the kind of originator molecule um way back when um years and years and years ago an evolutionary space
0: i guess how do how do we feel
1: <laughs> yeah
0: i i have a question um joe do you want to go first
1: yeah i was just gonna uh say that maybe for our listeners we should discuss a little bit about what catalysis means mm-hmm. um, i was gonna say
0: that too and and a little mm-hmm. bit of um how what the theory is behind RNA being able to do that when there was nothing, right? when Earth was soup, how did <laughs> RNA then catalyze
1: and i I think that's therein lies the whole debate about <laughs> right about okay this entire and the entire hypothesis I think there's um there's been a lot of interesting research that has come out like for or against this. I think there's it's it gets into more like philosophy rather than experimental science in a lot of cases i think um which i'd I'd love to get into maybe in another episode but um, yeah i
0: want to get your takes on it though both of you i mean yeah. you both work with rna you're both you know phd candidates you know i'd love to yeah i
1: i personally don't know enough yet about this specific aspect of rna it's a whole world out there uh pun intended but um yeah wait i don't, wait, know I don't get the right.
2: pun it's the RNA, oh, world. RNA
1: world. RNA world. It's like we we are the <laughs> we're the, hy- the whole hypothesis, like the of oh like RNA, RNA world stuff, hypothesis. Like RNA, the RNA world hypothesis. <laughs> it's RNA's
2: world. Yeah. We're just living in it. We're
0: just living in it.
2: <laughs>
1: Episode yeah. title. <laughs> yeah, right there. Um, yeah. Sorry, Maya. Do you have any other thoughts yeah, before we go on to the
2: um Yeah, I can get into it a little more. I I feel like. Hmm, I don't know. I feel like this is kind of like a polarizing topic. And I, I think you're right. It does kind of like wax on philosophical. Um, I feel like there could be kind of like more informed, kind of like evolutionary studies. Maybe I haven't looked deep enough, but I know people have kind of like simulated evolution of molecules, um, kind of like from the start, like in their own labs. And there's some data that suggests, um, pro-RNA world hypothesis there, but I also I'll I'll tell you guys about, like, the arguments against the RNA world, but I think, like, a good context to remember this in is that, like, we're in soup, like, there's nothing, like, too complicated going on. I feel like the RNA we're thinking of right now is probably very different from what RNA was years, eons ago in the primordial soup. That's true. So um, I think... um, In our soup era. In our soup era. (laughs) And so I feel like it's probably like much less impressive like what RNA did in the past and like what cells were up to like years and years and years ago. So, um we'll keep that in mind.
1: <laughs> mm-hmm.
2: But yeah, um but onto catalysis.
1: Yeah, so um I would say you can any uh, the way I think about like the concept of catalysis Is uh, a catalyst or a like, or is something that facilitates a chemical reaction that wouldn't like that is much less likely to happen without that thing kind of helping it along. Uh, So, for example, if we have uh, like like let's say we have a bunch of amino acids in that all the building blocks of proteins, um, or a bunch of um, actually even better, um, a bunch of um, RNA bases like our, our, our ribonucleotides all floating together in, in the primordial soup. Mm. <laughs> um, if we were, we're to kind of like wait around for all of them to like link up into a sequence, yeah, that might happen eventually. But honestly, like it might take billions and billions of years. Um, but if we have a protein um, or a, like a little machine that can actually like help it along, make it a little easier for that reaction to happen by bringing some of the building blocks closer together instead of having them float all over the place. Um, that is what catalysis is. Um, it decreases, it's a catalysis is something or is the process of decreasing the activation energy of a chemical reaction. Um, and that's, that's what a lot of proteins do. Um, like they, they, make something easier to happen you have to put less energy into it like maybe you have it's because you have the molecules closer maybe it's because like you're pulling some electrons off of one molecule and putting it onto the other molecule but um Mm. i'd I'd say that's the best way to in my opinion as i know it now to think of catalysis so rna can do things like that like it, it can do things like a lot of proteins do like like all these weird enzymes that like go around and like cut DNA, for example. Like we could talk about that in an episode. CRISPR, I think some people have heard about it where you kind of like this cool gene editing technology. That's an enzyme. That's catalyzing a reaction in which DNA is being cut. Um, But that'd be hard to happen Mm. without that that enzyme there. And RNA can do similar things too, which I think is really, really cool.
2: Yeah. Um, And I think that that gets into some of the um, arguments against the RNA world, interestingly. So... I feel like the the pro-arguments kind of, like, um, like, rely on this, like, crux that, oh, RNA can have catalytic, like, abilities, um, and that's why um, it could only, like, it's feasible to think that, oh, maybe this is, like, the molecule that only, the one molecule that cells needed to have in order to, like, um, keep going and sustain life. Um, but then there's also kind of, like, the counter-argument, um, which you hinted at, Joe, where, it's kind of like a chicken and egg thing so like um for rna we mentioned that like there are these like long like chains of like bases that are kind of like stuck together um so some people are like well how do you get the rna without the enzyme in the first place um what what (laughs) came first like what is it um And people think that, oh, you know, maybe you need, like, a really long, complicated RNA um, to be able to, like, make the crazy shapes um, and do, like, the cool catalytic functions. Um, But then how do you get, like, the long RNA without um, something stitching it together? Maybe it just kind of happens over space and time, like, a really long time. Um, Maybe um, it's different from what we're thinking of. Go ahead. Yeah. I just think it goes back to what you said about the
0: RNA that if, you know, say this theory is true, the RNA that existed eons ago in this soup. <laughs> we need to stop saying soup. Um <laughs> soup. I it's not the RNA that's in our bodies now. It's not the RNA that's studied. Um so you know, I'm no I'm no scientist, but I I just think that those points are kind of mute when you think of
2: Mm, yeah because i feel like there's a lot of and and that's like kind of like the fun things about theories is that like um like you know like none of us can go time travel back into like the soup and like peer into the little cells and like see what's in there that would be cool and it would shut up the debate forever (laughs) but um what's cool about like the um rna world hypothesis and um i guess like this is kind of like very true in the spirit of science is that um it really depends on like the assumptions you're making, um, and that completely changes kind of like the conclusions you can draw. Um, so yeah. I think it's a I think it's like kind of spicy and fun to have the RNA world hypothesis. Um, so it kind of like makes everybody kind of like reevaluate what they know, like what does make sense, what doesn't make sense, given what we currently know. Is it safe to assume um, RNAs today are the same as RNAs years ago? that kind of thing. Um, but I, I do have one more soup point that I want to bring up. Um, another popular mm-hmm. counter argument for the RNA world is that, we um, mentioned this a lot of times, and it's the reason why I'm afraid of RNA is that it's very unstable. <laughs> so like Joe was saying, you know, like, um, it's not the end of the world if RNA is unstable. But if we think back to the soup, the primordial soup, prebiotic conditions are like kind of like you know like not like a nice 70 degree day where it's like sunny you know it's like probably really different when the earth was first formed right and when life was like starting to take shape so um i was reading an article saying that um okay so like the primordial soup like is kind of harsh um some people think that rna's evolved on ice where maybe it's more stable Mm. Um, and also, I guess, like, given the conditions of the earth at that time, um, like, the overall acidity of the environment was, like, pretty acidic. So people, like, in the, in the article, they called it, um, the primordial soup might not be a soup, but a vinaigrette instead. (laughs) Mm. (laughs) So more food for thought, pun intended.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That was good. and acid isn't that great for RNA. Mm. Uh, it, can, it can break it down. Yeah.
2: Um, RNA really had yeah. to go through a lot, whether or not it did come first.
1: <laughs> that it yeah. did. And it's, they're still getting broken down every day. <laughs> Made and broken. Yeah. But <laughs> Me, I every day. <laughs> an
2: inspiration <laughs> to us all. <laughs> yeah, but um, I thought I would share the name of that article because I think it kind of captures... Um, kind of like the, the spirit of debate around the RNA world hypothesis so the title of the article is called The RNA World Hypothesis The Worst Theory of the Early Evolution of Life Except for All the Others (laughs)
1: <laughs> so, That's so yeah <laughs> i think like
2: i feel like there's probably a number of scientists i feel like very have very strong opinions about this hypothesis but there are some that are like oh you know like it could be either or and i think that was kind of like the spirit of this article um mm-hmm. which um kind of corroborated with a lot of other papers that i looked up um, preve- um presented some cases for and against the rna world so <laughs> i thought it was kind of funny <laughs> And that's the
0: beauty of science. There's always a debate about something.
2: Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So, yeah, think about it, listeners. Are you for or against the RNA world? Um, Some people think that there's a (laughs) a proteins first hypothesis where proteins actually came first before RNA, or maybe they co-evolved together. Um, Much debate there, but um, we'll let you kind of stew on it, soup on it, and think about it. (laughs) Stew on it. I did not know this episode was going to be about soup. <laughs> yeah, I, well, you make the art for all the episodes. So I'm mm. just
0: imagining like you drawing like a cute little bowl of soup, like alphabet Yay. soup, and it just saying RNA inside.
2: <laughs>
0: I love it. If that's not the cover art for this, everybody ignore me. Thank you for
2: giving me the idea. I yeah. love it. <laughs> also, I don't know. It's, um, it's autumn. It's fall right now. I feel like a big cozy bowl of RNA soup. Um, is just what we need.
1: <laughs> I mean, your soup probably does have some RNA in it. Confirmed. <laughs> there's
2: definitely some yeah. in there <laughs>
1: <laughs> i mean if, if you're if you got chicken if you got veggies in there like there's probably a little rna so it's is like, all
0: soup rna soup i guess so i think yeah nutrition i, I mean, think that's kinda... that's the t- that's the theory that we confirmed today soup confirmed i mean
1: <laughs> i think i think it'd be like, th- uh, given the normal ways in which we make soup, I think it'd be very challenging not to have anything, like, just biological in there, because just, like, anything biological is going to have RNA. So, um... It's, like, yeah.
0: gluten-free. RNA-free soup.
1: <laughs> yeah, I think that's going to be a little harder than being gluten-free. Uh, <laughs> but, yeah. Um, I think, uh, also, another another interesting thing, like, Maya has made all of the art for all of our episodes as our extraordinary artist in residence um <laughs> thank you thank you i think that's a wonderful title for <laughs> um but she's also a full-time phd student doing phd things and doing phd things uh that have kind of uh if i remember correctly related to rna yeah yeah um so i'm very I curious can, to hear yeah that. i
2: can speak uh, about it a little i actually um so to be more accurate my currently peach my current PhD work, um, has nothing to do with RNA, um, oh, which is I fun. Was fake news. <laughs> no, I fake, No, it's so cool. <laughs> but, um, but I will always have a soft spot for RNA because it was what my first research experience was in. Um, and the lab that I currently work in um, also specializes in RNA as well. I just happen to be doing a non protein or non non-RNA project I just happen to be doing a non-RNA um, project because I'm built different no I'm kidding but, um, <laughs> Joe, have you not been
0: listening Maya
2: is clearly afraid of RNA I'm afraid that's a good no, my, point. my boss is like I know I was like don't don't be afraid I'll give you a different project <laughs> 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 but um but yeah maybe I can pop in on the protein episode and tell you guys what I'm up to there um but I still am tangentially um around RNA um, so I guess, uh, I told you guys that RNA is what inspired me to do a research career. So I learned about it in biology class. I was like, wow, that's neat. Um, it seems like, I feel like I was an RNA world groupie, perhaps an undergrad. I was like, oh, so cool. It can do so many things that DNA can't. Um, so I wanted to learn more. Um, I emailed a bunch of RNA labs at my old university, um, looking for undergrad positions. So, um... I ended up working on a translation lab, so that's a process um, by which the messenger RNAs, mRNAs, are produced into proteins. Um, but in my journey, I also emailed a pi RNA lab. So there's so many different kinds of RNA with um, fun little acronyms. So I was sending emails to all of them, um, and I had a great time. Um, was afraid of working with RNA for a little bit, but learned a lot of really interesting biology and. Um, in my undergraduate lab, we read a journal club paper. Um, so we read a recently released, um, study published from UC Berkeley, um, about a really weird long RNA. Um, and we talked about it in journal club. We discussed it. And then fast forward a few later, I joined that lab that published that weird paper about the weird long RNAs. So it all comes full circle, um, and to get into those um, strange long RNAs, um, which is what my current lab studies, um, they're called LUTES. So that's the acronym, (laughs) LUTES, very cute. Um, That's so cute. It is really cute. So Mm. um, what it stands for is long undecoded transcript isoforms, um, and they're basically just Longer RNAs um, compared to kind of like a normal RNA. So um, in our lab, we study like we're interested in looking at like different kind of fun, non-canonical, non-conventional methods of gene regulation. So how genes are expressed, um, that kind of thing, how it expressed into RNA and into protein. Um, so these ludes or long undecoded transcript isoforms. Um, are um, one way of looking at that. And so we have like a specific set of genes that we were looking at. um, And each gene kind of has a corresponding mRNA, right? So we talked about that a little bit earlier. Um, But the LUTI, some genes have a LUTI form of that RNA um, where instead of like the normal length mRNA you might expect from the gene is made, um, a longer version is made. Um, and this has interesting properties. Um, so like, what are these like long boys doing in the cell? Who knows? Um, and boys. we're still, yeah, we're still doing a lot of work to try to figure out the function of these ludies Um, but something interesting that they demonstrated was that, um, they're able to control kind of the, um, expression of the gene. So when you have the ludies the long guys being made, Um, it corresponds to a decrease in protein output from the same gene. Um, So the thought is that these um, LUTIs are suppressive for protein production for those specific genes. Um, And what was really cool was that my lab um, found that there's a specific um, protein, a transcription factor, um, that is responsible for kind of toggling um, the control of these normal mRNAs versus the longer guys, the lutees. So switching between the lutees um, and the mRNAs um, during distinct developmental stages. Yeah, so um, in my lab, um, we also study meiosis, so the process in which um, sex cells are made. Um, And we found that um, there are a number of lutees that are temporally regulated, so turning on and off um, during distinct stages in meiosis, so throughout the developmental program um and this one transcription factor um which is called ndt80 it's a really important transcription factor um for meiosis regulating the expression of genes um, that help carry out meiosis um it was shown to be able to um, turn on these lutees long guys um, and suppress the protein production of um those genes of interests. So like Joe was saying, oh, you know, you might want to have like um, a protein or RNA at one time point, but not the other. Um, That's kind of what this um, NDT-80 transcription factor is doing, um, but kind of like through this weird way with long RNAs. (laughs) Ta-da!
0: Very cool. Thank you for sharing. You've been on this podcast for so long and I feel like this is the first time we're, you know, hearing about the work you do. So <laughs> Behind that's the so scenes. cool. Yeah. <laughs> and Joe, I think you also have um an RNA story that you oh, want yeah. to share with the class. Yeah,
1: <laughs> absolutely. So, um, like Maya, I have historically been very scared of RNA. Cause like, um, when I was first working with a uh, my supervisor, like that I was working with in college, um, like doing research, here's he told me that uh, humans actually just give off RNAs. Mm. Uh, like like these proteins that they're kind of like little Pac-Mans that just like go around just like chomping down on RNA and just like breaking it up. And the reason they do that is to break down viruses that are made out of RNA or things along those lines. Like you kind of, you don't want like RNAs from other other organisms kind of invading your, your body. That's just not good. Um, and so the challenge is as a person who is giving off a lot of RNAs, RNases, who is trying to work with RNA, it's a little you. You run the risk of like having the RNAs break down on if you breathe on them wrong. <laughs> like so, um, it can be challenging. And so, um, my first project in the lab was to do RNA sequencing, where you basically like your goal is to kind of see what the cell is think- thinking about. Like you basically like. Pop it open, pull out all the RNAs, break out the RNAs into little pieces and turn them into DNA so they're more stable and easy to sequence. You basically do DNA sequencing and kind of like match the the sequences you get up with the known human genome to be like, okay, we have like a lot of this specific sequence in our sample. So it must mean that there's a lot of RNA from this region. In the DNA that is being like transcribed you're, you're th- for whatever reason the cell is trying to read this specific sequence of DNA a lot and try and maybe try and make proteins out of that um so I was doing that and I spent like a whole week doing the RNA sequencing protocol like just like eight hours at a time just like going through it it was a long long protocol I was up very late uh, I was like wow I'm gonna do this first try it's gonna be incredible and I did my analysis to like see how much RNA libraries I got, which is basically like the the the, the DNA that you send for sequencing uh, after converting the RNA to DNA. Um, and I had nothing; there was nothing oh, in my sample at God. all. Oh, um, nice. So like nothing at all. Um, so a whole week of work was just lost, mm-hmm. and it was very sad. It be like um, that. It, it really ago, do. To this day, I don't know, like, what exactly was happening there. Um, like, maybe, like, it's possible that the reagents were faulty, but it was also my first time working with RNA, and I'd been warned, oh, yeah, just um, watch out. Like, <laughs> don't breathe, this is a, by the way. <laughs> uh, There's a good chance that, yeah. Mm. So um, Actually, can I
2: posit what might have happened? Yeah. So one time in my undergrad lab where I worked with RNA and where I became afraid sure. of it, um, one time we saw a spider on the bench, and then my PI was like, that's got RNAs on it. Get it. So <laughs> I think a spider came and walked all over your samples and then the RNAs degraded it.
1: It's quite possible. Yes. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so I was kind of scared of working with RNA for a while. Um, and that, but then after college, I found myself doing cancer biology work, kind of um, trying to understand a uh, protein that ended up, turned out like the way it was causing cells to die, like when we turned it on was, uh, like, in theory as a cancer treatment, um, like killing the cancer cells by turning on this protein just in the cancer cells, was it was actually cutting up a, a very specific tRNA. Um, and so uh, this protein, Schlafen-12... You're kidding. Um, ...was uh, cutting up one specific tRNA. And uh, basically, I like I was working alongside this incredible RNA biologist. Like, he was my mentor. He literally, an absolute whiz with RNA, like it, it, like he lives and breathes RNA. It it, it was so cool. He breathes um, it, but he
0: doesn't breathe on it.
1: <laughs> exactly. Um, and, but like, I, I had a chance to learn from him, like more about like how to work with RNA and, um, like he, like, I was very scared initially, but he was kind of just like, don't worry, Joe, like you got this. Like, it's okay. Like if it, if it goes wrong, like it's all right, we can just use the, previous sample like another sample and it'll be fine like and so i ended up doing i ended up purifying a bunch of rna from cells like to the point like i got enough rna that i could like see like this massive pellet at the bottom of my tube that's dope. It was really Ooh. cool and like this white like b- almost like pearl at the bottom oh. of it um <laughs> like i I, end- I i started out with a large amount of cells um and i was looking at like all the rna not just the messenger rna um and so i i then ran it on a gel and I had this beautiful, like, just, like, many, tons of different bands. But they were all, like, clear and crisp and clean. And he looked at me. And he was like, Joe, you have the hands for RNA. And oh! I was like, oh, my gosh. Like, it made me so happy. <laughs> you and did it, Joe. I, I think it's, like, yeah. And obviously, like, the really interesting thing was he was like, you don't actually have to worry about it too much. Like, just, just be just wipe down the area like with your rna killing like stuff just don't like sneeze on it like don't don't worry too much and it's probably going to be fine um and like rna is a little less stable than you'd think uh or a little more stable than you might think and so it turned out to be true and it was just a really powerful experience and now here i am i'm doing a, a, a little different stuff right now um, I'm working with uh, trying to understand mitochondrial RNA. and because um, my our mitochondria
0: episode if you yeah, haven't.
1: <laughs> mitochondria in your cells actually take in RNA from outside the cell or from outside the mitochondria and actually um, spit out RNA into the cytoplasm, like in, like in, of the cell that they're inside. And so there's this really interesting communication going on between the larger cell and the mitochondria where they're sending rnas back and forth from each other and we're uh, trying to learn more about that and how we can co-opt that for like sending rnas to the mitochondria and back and forth um so yeah it's a cool time
2: cool and yeah as you guys know um There's a lot of interesting RNA research is going on, so many new developments, and I thought it would be fun if we close out the episode with a little discussion about current events. Um, Oh, yeah. So, um, as you may have known, maybe just a little bit, um, the 2023 Nobel Prize in Physiology and Medicine was awarded to RNA biologists Catalin Carrico and Drew Weissman, um, for their work in the development of the COVID mRNA vaccine. Seem familiar? Maybe. (laughs) So, um, I think this was really cool because, um, maybe just to my knowledge, it didn't seem like mRNA vaccines were a huge deal, um, prior to the development of the COVID vaccine. Um, so when you think about vaccines, um, you might have heard is that usually people kind of like use a weakened or dead version of whatever disease causing agent um, to build the vaccine. So when you get that weakened or dead version of like a virus or bug, um your body was like oh my god an invader and then it um launches an immune response um, so that you can be protected if um you encounter the real thing if it happens um but since that um but since you're getting like a weakened or dead version of like the virus or germ or infectious agent um it's unlikely to do you um much harm um so since then um for vaccine development, other than using those weakened or dead versions of um, viruses and germs, um, people have also traditionally used um, different kind of proteins isolated from the virus to um, help put into the vaccines. Um, people have also used genetic material from viruses um, as a vaccine. And. Um, and all of those have worked pretty effectively i think we have probably received a lot of vaccines over our lifetime that um uses one of these methods um but i think the main con for um, the development of these vaccines is that you need to use a lot of resources you need to mobilize a lot of equipment and reagents um, to be able to produce the vaccine to a large scale so for the um weakened or dead versions of the virus or um, the proteins from the virus or the um, viral vector, genetic materials, like um, all of that that goes into other types of vaccines, um, you need to large scale produce them in cell culture. Um, However, I believe the idea for mRNA is that um, there's no need to use a cell culture system to grow um, all of the components that you need for the other types of vaccines. Um, You can just synthesize mRNA Um, in vitro, just like make a long little chain of um, mRNA. Um, But from what I understand, um, the challenges before the COVID vaccine um, were that um, mRNA was hard to deliver um, and also induces an immune response, some once administered. Um, But the idea is cool, right? So you could kind of synthesize an mRNA molecule, um, maybe for like a protein that the virus has, um, deliver it to the cells, deliver it to a person, um, and then they could um, launch their immune response and develop resistance um, to the um, disease-causing agent. So, um, yeah, that's kind of like the principle behind it. Um, and Joe, I believe that you have some insight on kind of the Nobel Prize workings um that happened for Dr. Carrico yeah. and Dr. Weisman.
1: Yeah, so actually um the uh Nobel Prize was awarded to uh Dr uh Doctors Carrico and Weissman, uh here at the University of Pennsylvania. Um which was very very exciting. They have a lab here. Um and um so it was kind of a big deal we all uh like a bunch of people came and like celebrated them and then we had a big toast and um i think uh, i think they were getting a little overwhelmed by the amount of people uh who were there but um it, it's just a really exciting experience because to be honest um this uh the discovery that they made um really like has saved a lot of lives um and it's it's really significantly like over like billions of people have received a uh, to my knowledge that number may be incorrect but billion to my knowledge billions of people have received an mRNA vaccine or at the least there have been billions of doses made um, and so what they discovered is not exactly the um, like the the way. To Like the idea of an mRNA vaccine Like that had been thought of before It was that Whenever you took your mRNA And just stuck it in a cell Like it wouldn't always Like you make get a little bit of the protein That you're trying to make But like not enough Where it could actually be like Therapeutically useful And one of the, Part of the reason for that um, Dr. Uh, Dr. Carrico and Weissman found out Was actually because of What we were talking about Way earlier in the episode Um, mRNA, like that uracil that we were talking about, um, can actually like be slightly modified. Um, like that uracil base can be changed to a uh, base called pseudouridine, um, which is very structurally similar, but slightly different. And what that tells a cell is essentially, Hey, I am part of you. I am not a virus. I am okay. Don't kill me. Um, and so... They, what they showed well, like a while ago, actually, uh, was that if you t- instead of, if you take an mRNA, like if you make an mRNA, um, and you change all your uracils to pseudouridine, the cell more easily accepts that, um, and it doesn't turn on the the immune response um, as intensely as if you had a mRNA with just normal uracil. And so um, it turned out like initially. People were not interested in this idea at all. It was to the point where uh, Dr. Karika, when she was uh, trying to apply for funding, could like to get money for this research, couldn't actually get grants because people thought it wasn't necessary. Like, maybe uh, like this, I'm sure there are other things that went into this, but it's to a lot of people, they didn't think it was a worthwhile area to pursue um, and that it was better to invest their money elsewhere. Uh, it got to the point where she actually ended up leaving the University of Pennsylvania and uh, founding a biotech company because she uh, couldn't, like she was kind of pushed out because she couldn't bring in funding. So this, this kind of illustrates one of the challenges that exists within academia. And um, certainly like we think, we're, obviously we think greatly of this kind of work now, and it's clearly very important for a lot of people, but historically it was not really well appreciated or not considered to be super relevant. And so, uh, unfortunately, Dr. Carrico, when she first started doing this work, um, like was struggling to get funding, and um, she ended up bumping into this other person, Drew Weissman, at a copy machine. Copy machine, and they kind of had like a little of disagreement. all places, <laughs> um, and they they just started talking about mRNA, <laughs> and um, and about like RNA modifications in her research, and they ended up uh, having this wonderful partnership that uh, blossomed into, uh, like, one, a, a the ability to generally, effectively, not just in principle, but effectively get proteins into a cell or, or messages to make proteins into a cell, to give, like, a program to a cell to say, hey, make this protein, but also the basis for the mRNA vaccines. And so it's... Um, it's really incredible, but it was not a linear, not an easy journey. Um and there were a lot of people along the way who just weren't um excited about this work and as such um it was challenging to get funding initially. Now certainly uh there are many people making a lot of money <laughs> off of this. No question, um, seriously. But um it goes to show like how there are a lot of scientists out there whose work doesn't always go, isn't always recognized. But at the drop of a hat, things can change and that work can be needed. And so uh, I think it's a really powerful experience or really powerful illustration. Sorry to rant for a long time, no, but I think it's a really, really cool story in many ways.
2: Yeah. And like, I thought it was so cool how like the mRNA vaccine is like basically getting the cell to like do the work for you. So now that we yeah. have our – rather that we, we didn't do it, but, like, um, <laughs> doctors Kariko and Weissman kind of, like, figured out um, how to sneak the RNA um, past the cells um, and into them um, so that they kind of, like, don't get destroyed th- um, by, like, the other cells thinking that it's, like, foreign RNA. Um, once the message is in there, um, cells can just make the COVID spike protein and then launch an immune response after it. So that's why I think, like, um, it's kind of crazy because I feel like um, – when all of like the funding and everything was emergency funding was being poured into like developing the vaccine. Once the mRNA vaccine was like hammered out, like it really took off. Like like you were saying, Joe, like billions and billions of doses were made. People are able to manufacture it in a short time. um Probably because like you didn't need to like have like huge giant cell culture systems. You could just make rna chemically um and it was a good thing to have when we all needed a vaccine very quickly for many people so yeah yeah
1: (laughs) absolutely and i think another thing is if this is not the end of rna work there's also a lot of work being done for uh, rna-based cancer vaccines um so like you can find like basically like code uh, an RNA that like may make a protein that will is like specific to a cancer rather than the rest of your cells. And so um, it's, it's just a really cool field to like watch emerging right now. And there's so many things that will, will be happening down the road. Uh, so many different RNAs to play with uh, for sure. <laughs> 100%. Um, and,
2: yeah, and we didn't even yeah. touch on all of the different kinds of RNAs. Um, there's like a lot of really interesting, like new, te- like sequencing technology that's out there, lots of different therapeutics that are being made. So definitely is um, an exciting space to watch.
1: Absolutely. Um, yeah.
2: yeah. Well, I think that's about it. I think we could talk about RNA forever, but I think that could be maybe a part two episode. <laughs> but yes, thank no. you so ah, much for great. joining
0: us, everyone. Woo! Yeah, Thanks so much. Thank um, follow us on uh, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn. We're um, at Interactome Media. Um,
1: I believe our Twitter handle is at the And At the interactum, at our the interactum yeah. yeah. Our Instagram handle is at of the Interactome underscore media. And yes. you can also find us at www.interactomemedia.org <laughs>